another episode of Thick and Thin Hoops, where ball is always life. I'm your host, Karthik, here with my co-host, Nathan. What's good, Nathan? Yo, what's up, man? It's April 1st, um, if you can believe it. Normally, we'd be two weeks away from the end of the regular season, but we still have, I think, almost six weeks or more to go. But it does feel like uh, the tide is turning in life in the NBA. So tonight, I actually played basketball for the first time during the pandemic, which with that all you out there you know we were masked sort of or whatever but it's like pickup which is actually kind of a cool thing that they do you pay like 15 bucks and you get you sign up right and it'll cancel if there's not enough people so you know you're going to get at least a 5 on 5 game and we actually had 15 cuz which I think I needed cuz my lungs were about to actually explode on the court but we're back, man. We're getting close. Spring tra- uh, sorry, opening day today in baseball. This feels like we're start of, you know, starting to see the end, light at the end of the tunnel. It was 90 degrees outside today in San Jose, so it's starting to feel like summer. The baseball, I don't I don't like the baseball part of it coming back cuz now all of a sudden like the ticker is like blown up with baseball box scores and you know, I liked it when it was all just about basketball. And, and there's no other sport really competing. But I think what baseball symbolizes, right, is that a return to normalcy. Because if you think about the two sports that were most disrupted by COVID, it was actually probably baseball and college basketball. And with baseball, we had that like weird 60-game season. And like, yes, there was a season. Yes, there was a champion, blah, blah, blah. But it didn't feel real. As a San Francisco Giants fan, I'm sure you're not ready to give that the Dodgers title of like any real credence, right? So it just it just it felt like a little bit of a farce. And with college basketball, of course, the tournament was canceled altogether. So the fact that we're back in the March swing of March Madness, swing of opening day in baseball, it's like okay, here's the world that we are used to, um, and here's the world that we're like ready to embrace again. So speaking of March Madness. The year of Karthik continues. So let's recap for a second. So we got we started early. Uh, Joe Biden won the presidency. We're all happy about that. You especially. Um, COVID vaccine rolled out. We know you're a big science guy, so that's also a plus in your column. Uh, the Bucks won the Super Bowl for the first time in 19 years, um, which two Super Bowls in 19 years is not bad. But when you when you sandwich those with some of the worst football I think played in the in the entire NFL it means a lot more De'Aaron Fox has turned into a near superstar he averaged 30 points a game for the month of March Kings are rolling right into the play-in tournament and now your UCLA Bruins the first ever team to go from the first four to the final four we didn't even know their team. There was like UCLA slash Michigan State in the bracket when you were trying to fill out the bracket you didn't even know who to pick they upset Michigan on Tuesday. Talk to me about what's going through your mind. UCLA is back in the Final Four for the first time since what? Like the Aaron Aflalo teams or later Kevin Love. Than that? Kevin Love. Kevin Love, Russell, Russell Westbrook, Westbrook team. Yeah. So what's going on with that? Talk, talk to me about your just, I mean, just, can you just go put it all on black? Because I feel like you're going to hit. I know. I feel like we've spent so many of these podcast episodes with me doing victory laps. And it's time <laughs> for yet another one. Look. UCLA basketball has disappointed, to say the least, you know, the last decade. And for a program that's chock with tradition, that's known for being the, uh, you know, the winningest basketball school in history, uh, you know, John Wooden, everything. There's a legacy. There's a culture there. They have not lived up to that. Steve Alford has coached this team the last several years, and it has been terrible. 
And look, the last time they went to the Final Four, I was a sophomore at UC- or freshman at UCLA, watching that that Westbrook uh, Love team. Collison was still there. Um, was Drew Holiday on that team? Drew Holiday came the next year. Okay. Drew Holiday was there my my sophomore year. Um, but anyways, uh, that was the last time UCLA was really dominant. And, you know, back then at UCLA, basketball was such a big thing. And you had to literally line up to get student tickets. Even to get a student ticket, you had to line up in front of the ticket office two days in advance. Um, and people would camp out. They'd have tents out there, camped out, waiting in line skipping class or like taking turns with people just to get tickets to the game. So that's what basketball used to mean at UCLA. And since then it's never been the same. They don't even sell out, uh, you know, the stadium. Um, there's just this apathy towards UCLA basketball. That's been there. We always have big names and big stars. I mean, you talk about Lonzo ball, you talk about, um, yeah. Why am I blanking? <laughs> Zach Levine, TJ leaf, like all these guys. Yeah, TJ Leaf. Yeah, let's talk about TJ Leaf, NBA superstar. Aaron Holiday, you know, Shabazz Muhammad. Like all these guys are NBA players, but they were all part of teams that didn't really get anywhere past the Sweet 16. So all this to say, it has been an unbelievable run, not expected at all to go from first four all the way to the final four uh, and to do it when, um, you know, no one really believed in us. We had a bunch of guys out. Couple, you know, Deshaun Nix went to the G League before the season. We lost Chris Smith, our best player, uh, early in the season. We lost Jalen Hill, who's a key rotation guy. All Despite all that adversity, we continue to keep winning. And now we're probably going to get wrecked by Gonzaga. But you know what? Like This was our championship. Getting to the Final Four was like winning the title. And, and Westwood almost burned down because of it. So we've already celebrated. We've already done the victory lap. And everything after this is gravy. I remember telling my boys before the season, I don't know how UCLA is going to recover from the loss of Chris Smith. And I was like, you know, pretty keyed in on how they were going to make that run. But they Are you managed. Serious? <laughs> no. Okay. <I> was like... <laughs> we, though, you know, I was watching the game with some buddies, uh, obviously noted Nick, uh, Michigan alum, Nick Hill Sharma, shout out, um, and, and a few others. And he was having just a meltdown, right? Like it was, it was bad, but I was secretly rooting for UCLA. So we'd get some pod content, yeah. <laughs> even though I'd have to listen to you spout off about their greatness. But that being said, I was watching the game and that Juzang kid. Yep. Johnny Juzang. Was, he looked like prime Devin Booker out there. Like what was <laughs> this guy, it, their whole offense was just like, how do we run him around as many screens as possible? And then him, let him go like ISO step back, uh, mid range jumper. And then just cash every time. And every time it looked like it was going to be short. I don't know. Yeah. Just the way he shot or his release point. And it was just like unbelievable to watch. I mean, this is why people love March Madness. He doesn't, he never swishes. It always kind of creeps over the front end of the rim. So I know exactly yes. what you mean. Yeah. Look, Johnny Juzang was a four-star recruit, went to Kentucky, sat on the bench kind of for Coach Cal, didn't really get any playing time. And then, you know, once the pandemic hit, he was able to transfer to UCLA and still be eligible to play this year. And he's from the LA area. So we kind of got lucky that, you know, Cal didn't really play him. Kentucky could have used him this year. Kentucky didn't even make the tournament. And um, and he's been something else, man. He's going to be – he's an NBA prospect. Like, his stock is definitely rising. Uh, he probably needs to stay another year. He's a sophomore right now. Um, one more year, and he needs to buck up a bit. But he could be a late first rounder, I think, or early second, the way he's playing. Yeah, and like Michigan lost their best player before the tournament started, right? Livers or some someone mm-hmm. like that, something yep. like Livers. And so 
it was obviously still they were still favored going into that UCLA game, but it was kind of a t- uh, pretty impressive that they had gotten to that point. Jawan Howard, you know the the alum coming back, everyone likes that story. But on the UCLA side, Mick Cronin was apparently not even like one of their top choices, right? Like this was kind of the backup option who now, you know, they look like geniuses for and they almost stumbled into it. Cronin wasn't even on the first page of the, you know, the list of recruits or the list of coaching candidates, sorry. Um, Cronin Cronin even joked about it in his press conference about how he must have been the sixth or seventh candidate. Like he even knows that this job was way above him. But, and the funny thing is UCLA has always loved to tie themselves to you know, when, the, when we fired Steve Alford, Calipari was a hot name. Um, there are a couple others I'm trying to think. Like, they're talking about maybe Billy Donovan coming back. There were some all high-profile guys, all flashy guys. Cronin is a, was a great coach at Cincinnati, but he's kind of a blue-collar, hard-nosed, preaches defense. That's not what UCLA is about, right? We, we had Lonzo Ball roll through here, Zach Levine roll through here. Um, TJ Leaf. TJ Leaf. <laughs> <laughs> um. And so, look, Cronin has worked out better than anyone could have expected, and he's brought a real identity to this team. And and this formula works, right? Because UCLA can recruit. Like, we have a couple five-star guys coming in this season. We're going to get top-end talent. So I think the offense will take care of itself. But he's given us an identity on defense and a toughness on defense. And when you put those two together, we're going to be a really good team, I think, moving forward. Well, it's funny when, like, you think about these blue bloods, whether it's in basketball or even in football – where you almost just have the fan base has been there forever. So they've seen all of the glory years. And so they have this like expectation that's a far departure from reality uh, in terms of who you can hire. Like Indiana was talking Brad Stevens, like that was a foregone conclusion. And they were talking other top guys and they ended up with Mike Woodson, right? And, you know, and, um, you know, look at Nebraska football, who keeps recycling these bad coaches trying to think that they got the next good guy. Same thing with uh, Texas, right? Texas football is the same way. And UCLA has had more recent success probably than some of those programs. But at the same point, it's a different um, set of leaders in the clubhouse. And I'm very interested to see what UNC does with their coaching position, right? Because Roy Williams retired today and it's like, okay, they were good recently as like two, three years ago. They won the national title. So by no means are they like out of the picture by, you know, but the recruiting model has changed. So Roy Williams was not a one-and-done guy. And basically everyone around him, including Coach K, including obviously Calipari led the charge, and including UCLA's opponent, Gonzaga, has yep. turned into this one-and-done factory to some degree. So Gonzaga now has a top-five pick in Jalen Suggs, who's their best player. Um, and they never used to play that way or never used to actually recruit top-end NBA talent. And now we've seen you know, Jalen Suggs will go. Damonta Sabonis, Rui Hachimura, Kelly Olynyk. So they're starting to develop a cachet. And so I'm really curious to see how they go with that hire because they're another program like UCLA where it's like all of the prestige, you know, you win, you're king, but they don't necessarily are, they aren't on the same pecking order that they once were. Yeah. You know, the one advantage UCLA has over a lot of those blue bloods is the LA recruiting base. Like we have all the best players Everyone wants to play for California. The funny thing is UCLA basketball is um, UCLA fans are front runners. I, I'm not going to lie. Like when the team's not doing well, no one cares. That's kind of the, what it is in LA. Like there's other things like to the do. Miami to thing, right? Yeah, exactly. It's like it, when the team is not good, no one cares. When the team's great, the fan base is super passionate. So, you know, the Kentucky fans, the UNC fans are always going to care. The program's always going to be relevant. 
UCLA literally was irrelevant um, for several years. We'd, yeah, we'd make the tournament, but it'd be a first round or second round exit, despite all the talent we were bringing in. Like we were still, we were irrelevant and still bringing in top end talent. And so I think, you know, this, it's the rare case of like, yeah, it's, we're blue blood, but for us to come back into prominence is, is a really big deal because now all of a sudden the entire program's revitalized. All of a sudden, all these ex UCLA guys who haven't been saying anything these past couple of years, like love is all of a sudden repping UCLA again. Like yeah. Guys like Earl Watson are coming out of the woodworks and talking about UCLA and none of these guys care for the last five, six, seven years. Right. So it, it's cool just to play see. in actual games. He just wants to tweet about UCLA basketball. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then, you know, Bill Walton has, has been strangely silent, but I think we, you know, hopefully we get to see him in the final four um, because yeah. he's obviously the biggest champion. So, so let's talk about the actual tournament. So, you know, full disclosure, I don't watch much college basketball. I think I've made that publicly known yep. um, maybe to an extreme that's not required. I could just say, I don't like it without trashing the entire <laughs> sport. I did feel as a little embarrassing that as we've recorded now two podcasts during the tournament, we I barely even mentioned that it was ongoing, um, and we were forced. Our hand was forced by the fact that UCLA made the Final Four. But I have been paying attention. You've obviously been watching much closer than I have. What were some of your reactions just as you've gone through? You know, now we have our Final Four. It's going to be Baylor, Houston versus. Um, Gonzaga, sorry, Baylor and Houston on one side, Gonzaga and UCLA on the other side, but more macro level, what have been your primary observations and how do you contrast that versus the product we see night to night on the NBA? So, you know, speaking specifically to the tournament, I think um, the Big Ten was seen as a power conference and the Pac-12 was not taken seriously. I think the tournament has completely shown that the narrative should have been flipped. Um, The Big Ten all looked a little bit better than they should have or than they actually were in the regular season. And none of those teams ended up making the final four. Like Illinois was, was supposed to be also a powerhouse. Like I picked Illinois to beat Gonzaga and <laughs> that failed miserably. Um, and I think PAC 12 and all the PAC 12 teams made it, you know, had a good showing um, and we're all underseated. So I think that was for me, the main takeaway but forget about like the tournament and the teams and all that. I think the biggest thing watching this tournament so closely and look, when your team is doing well, you watch more closely and you watch more games. If Virginia Tech was still in it, like in the final four, um, right, you'd be a lot more tuned into the tournament, right? And <laughs> to say the least, if we were in the final four, I'd be looking for the world's end because it was it's about to come crashing down. And and let me, let me tell you that. Yeah. And I've been watching college basketball versus the NBA for a long time now, but 10 years ago. I'd look at the college basketball product and complain about how slow it is, um, the constant turnovers, the missed free throws, and the NBA game is just a better product. It's still the truth today, but what I found most alarming was there are still games in college football or basketball where you are literally in a slugfest. Like UCLA beat Michigan 51-49. UCLA is not even that – was a like – 52nd ranked defensive team in the regular season. Um, so that's not even like, they're not like a top five defensive team, but they held Michigan, a elite offense to 49. And there are a lot of games that we've seen this tournament where the scores are in the forties and fifties. And so the contrast is even more today when we're seeing the NBA box scores creep up into 140 to 130, 130, 120. Whereas college basketball still seems rooted in the same kind of scoring range, right? It hasn't, we haven't seen the leap, you know, even though they reduced the shot clock from 35 to 30 several years back and they did some other things to make the game more fast. 
it hasn't really sped up the same way the NBA has. And I've started to appreciate that more. Like it, it's a different style of basketball and you get tired of the run and gun three point shooting of the NBA. And I'm really starting to appreciate this heavy ISO ball, you know, free throw shooters who are normally really good, just going cold. Like, yeah, this is this year. I've really started to appreciate the college game more um, and because of the contrast with the NBA. Well, well, I think the variance created by the just l- the lesser skill is always what makes the tournament so exciting, right? That's why a team like um, who is a fit Oral Roberts can beat Ohio State and Florida back to back and almost beat Arkansas too, right? And so that's always what's fun about March Madness. That's what, what's fun about college basketball is there's so much variance because an 85% free throw shooter goes to the line for a one-on-one with 40 seconds left. And guess what? He's 19 and he just breaks mentally under the pressure, which is totally normal. We, uh, we would all do that. Um, I, I will relent this. I have not really enjoyed the 140 to 130 NBA games um, because I think although it partly is driven by just really getting to another level in terms of skill, in terms of work ethic, which is like perfecting shooting and all those kinds of things. I think a big part of it has turned into like, I don't know if it's from the bubble or because of no fans. We've talked about this multiple times. I'm not really sure what's driving up the recent scoring surge, but at the very least you can say it's just the preponderance of three point attempts compared to everything else. And I don't think that I enjoy that basketball in college. It's like you said, it's way more methodical. Um, 30 seconds, but then the reset is 30 seconds, which, and they take all 30 seconds of both shot clocks anytime they get an offensive rebound. And so I think there's a, there's kind of a joy to that. It's, it's, it's almost like masochism in a way though, because <laughs> like I was watching the UCLA Michigan game and they were scoring like a point a minute. <laughs> and I was just like, I don't understand. Like these guys are just, it, they're just, they can't shoot yeah, and they can't get by anybody. And I guess they're like, they are playing hard. You can tell. And I think that's what a lot of people like about it. Ultimately they're just playing really fucking hard. Um, and that much is clear. So I, I understand the appeal from that angle. I, the piece I just can't get over is like, if you could somehow superimpose like even 75% of NBA skill level into that game, then it might be the best version of basketball. But because you can't, that's what makes it really tough. But at the same time, some of those slugfests can be fun. Like it's almost like, like Virginia tech was always a defensive school with a bad offense. And like we would have bowl games where we'd win like 13, 10. And that's not fun. That's not how the NFL is played anymore either. But to watch it in that moment, it was almost like a novelty. Well, yeah, and so you know the other thing, not only being a novelty, the reason it's much more fun sometimes in the professional game. When you look at college football or college basketball, it's because there are so many different types of offenses and play styles. In in college football, obviously, you have your spread teams, you have your traditional kind of more um, you know pro style teams, you have your pistol teams, and then in college basketball, you have the teams that are all run and gun. You have the UCLA's, which is just the Juzang offense. Um, you know, you have so many different styles. And I think the NBA and the NFL, there's no, uh, everything is kind of uh, converged into one style, right? Every team has kind of found the optimal playing style, which is shooting a lot of threes and scoring in the paint, getting to the line. And so every game you watch the NBA it looks the same. It's just different players, different talent. 
Whereas when I see UCLA Michigan, that's going to look very different than UCLA Gonzaga. And that's going to look very different than Gonzaga Baylor, right? So that's yeah. also part of the appeal, which is each team plays a completely different way. And totally so it's agree. unpredictable when Michigan, a high cutting, fast flying offense, goes up against UCLA. What's that going to look like? Is UCLA going to get thrown into a shootout? Or is Michigan going to get thrown into a possession by possession, you know, um, kind of uh, like match? So that is the real appeal, um, I think, of the games. Uh, and every game looks a little bit different. And But look, I'll also admit, though, sometimes it's infuriating watching. You have 30 seconds in the shot clock. That doesn't mean yeah. you dribble the first 20 seconds out just near half court and then get into your offense. Like a lot of what's happening is not even basketball. I think there's like six times per game. I'm like, why did you fucking do that? Yeah. Uh, but I, but I totally like that point around the variability of play styles. Like Baylor Houston is going to be fascinating, right? Cause Houston's just like this slow it down, lock them up, just like almost like nineties Knicks type basketball. And Baylor's like an athletic run and gun, shoot a ton of threes, shoot them at high proficiency. They're, they're almost more of like a modern NBA team in that way. They got the three guard lineup. I just learned all this stuff like in the last week. Um, and so I think that's going to be a lot of fun. And and to your point, we've never seen them play before, right? So you can't yeah. be like, all right, their season record was three to one, this team. And then they they don't necessarily need to play each other's styles much because they haven't played a lot of teams that do that. Um, isn't this one of the fun things about bowl games where you have like a big 12 offense going against an SEC defense and you're just like, oh, they'll never be able to do what they do with sec speed and then it's that's what happens but you know if you're in oklahoma for example you've never practiced against an alabama type team or played against all you've played against is like texas tech and like missouri so um and then you add the single sec now but yeah anyway but then you add the single game format to it and that's why coaching matters because you've never played this team before all of a sudden you realize what this game is going to be like and you have to make adjustments on the fly there's no best of seven series there's no, oh, you know, a lot of times in the NBA series, like we see a team gives up game one, but they come back, they figure things out, make adjustments. You can't do that. And so I think yeah. coaching matters even more. And I think that's why a guy like Mick Cronin, um, who is very good at kind of adapting to other teams' play styles, ends up doing better in the tournament because, um, you know, he's able to kind of just adapt to different teams. So do you see anyone getting close to Gonzaga? No, no. So, you know, all season long, I used to think, Oh, Gonzaga 30 and 0, whatever. We've seen teams go undefeated before or close to undefeated. And but after watching them in the tournament and then, you know, just the talent and the speed at which they play, and they're just running through teams. Yeah. I don't know. I, I at least I don't think it has to be a really weird game for them to lose. But even then, they've got so much NBA talent that if it's a close defensive game, like I don't see them like, you know, like for example, Michigan UCLA. That game was close at the end. Michigan didn't score for like the last five minutes. And they couldn't get a shot. You know, like that game was there for the taking. You get into a game like that with Gonzaga, that's an ideal scenario, right? You're in a close game with Gonzaga. They've been blowing everyone out. But you're going to stop Jalen Suggs. You're going to stop Corey Kispert. Like these guys are going to score on you eventually. So. Dude, I was watching the Arkansas-Baylor game, I think, and Arkansas had cut it to four, I believe, and then proceeded to go eight minutes without a field goal. <laughs> That's the thing with these teams. They just all of a sudden, oh, like, they go through these stretches where literally nothing goes in. 
Yeah, well, so I think Gonzaga's going to win as well. I'm not going to say that nobody will give him a chance shot, especially when they're potentially playing a one seed or a two seed in the championship. So those are obviously very good teams. They are going to be, if they win, right, the first undefeated team to win the title since the Bob Knight Indiana, Indiana Hoosiers, right, mm-hmm. in the 70s because yep. the Carl Anthony Towns team got very lost. close and then yeah. lost in the Final Four. And then St. Joe's lost and a couple other teams. Maybe Gonzaga's done it once before yeah. too. Yeah, it's it's not even close. Like USC, you. You know your college basketball history. Huh? I mean, I dabble. I, <laughs> I play Sporkle every now and then. But you know, USC beat Kansas by like thirty five. Yeah, and then they handled Oregon by fifteen or twenty. I don't know where it ended up. And then they had no shot. Like the game started and it was over. And then I think up till then Gonzaga hadn't really played anyone great. But that one was a game where it's like, okay, they have real NBA talent, right? Evan Mobley is a top yep. five pick. They're Sorry. big, yeah. physical. Yeah. They're like an athletic team that you would think athletic. would give um, give Gonzaga trouble. And it was like, nope. And Suggs didn't even do that much. That's that's a crazy thing. Yeah, it, it's going to be a uh, – honestly, Gonzaga is going to wreck, wreck UCLA. I don't think it's going to be a 20-point game, but it's not going to be close. But look. That's a great thing about college basketball is the final four is kind of treated like its own little thing, right? You make the final four, they make the t-shirts, you cut the nets. It's true. Like the use of the players were freaking doing snow angels and the confetti. Like it felt like we won a title. So that's. And coaches, their resume includes final fours. Yeah. Like Mike Krzyzewski has been to whatever, 10 final fours or whatever it is. That's like part of the resume. Yep. So. I saw an article and maybe this is the transition to to the NBA because. I don't know that I can do much more in college here, but <laughs> I saw an article that was like, should we celebrate the NBA teams that make the final four the way we do college? Or has our rings culture gotten so excessive and toxic that it's literally only one outcome makes you a success, a success and everything else is like a failure. It'd be harder. I, I would love that idea. I would love that idea because then you have small market teams and teams can play for something beyond a championship right and then guys like charles barkley reggie miller get remembered a little bit differently than just guys yeah steve nash as guys who just never won a ring right um and so you're there's like levels to this right then there's another hierarchy of stars who at least racked up final four appearances even if they didn't win titles um so yeah that that would be a cool thing to the resume right like absolutely you can say russell westbrook has made four final fours or something like that right and won finals and that's like part of his resume, the way it would be if he won a title. And then all of a sudden you realize Dame Lillard, you know, maybe despite all the individual stats, doesn't have a lot of the final four appearances. Yeah, he's got right? one. Right? Yeah, but or my point is that like you can start to separate some of these guys who are all like really good, but no title. Um, totally. I, I love that idea, but now it, it can never happen. It's just... Because right now it's like, okay, James Harden is a playoff failure. Damon Lillard is a playoff failure. But they're different kinds, right? Yep. Like Harden's had more success. He's been to three or four fi- conference finals. He's been to an NBA finals. He's had real shot to win, and Dame hasn't. And so I think that matters, especially as you're discussing their careers. And I don't think those two players are comparable. Like Harden is obviously in a different tier, even in terms of his regular season stats. But, you know, that's going – like 20 years from now, that could be something that people bring up. Like, you're oh, right. Harden is if you look on, on paper, the same level. Insane offensive stats, no titles. Uh, yeah, Harden has the MVPs, but I mean, they look a lot more similar on paper than if you actually watch them through their careers, you know Harden got a lot closer, right? So I love that idea, man. I, it's just, <laughs> it would never happen. And then that way, Kings fans have something to wish for. Like, we're never winning the title, but hey, maybe we get into the Final Four. 
The Wizards haven't <laughs> even done one of these since 1979. So didn't you? What was the year where John Wall stood? On? That was round two. Oh God! I always he would have done the... that in the playing game if it was around back then. <laughs> he would have done that in the nine. I always think of that as such game. a big moment and a big series, and then I remember it was just round two. It was not like a dude. They lost that series. They lost the very next game. I know, I know, but I I keep thinking of it as they lost in the conference finals, but they weren't even that close. <laughs> that was our version of doing snow angels on the court, despite <laughs> having more games to play. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Um, but all right, so let's talk. I wanted to talk, uh, really quickly about the nets for a couple things. So you get to pick, do you want to talk about the buyout stuff and their, their team? Or do you want to talk about KD and the fact that he's on one right now? Let's, uh, let's start with KD. Let's start with KD. Okay. So KD, for those who don't know, he hasn't played, of course, since I think February 13th. Um, this hamstring injury just continues to not get better or i guess they're being like incredibly cautionary who knows but he's been out they've been on an absolute tear i think they're like 19 and 3 uh in their last 22 uh harden's playing next next level but katie's in the news because michael rapaport uh posted instagram dms between the two of them uh where katie was calling him out pretty viciously going going back and forth it was unclear to me if this was like a prank or if this was something that they just like always talk shit to each other. And this was something that just is the normal discourse, but nonetheless in 2021 where we care about these things to the nth degree, I have to say that I am personally utterly, utterly shocked that this story is not getting more attention. Yeah. Uh, this is not the eighth man on the Pistons. This is the third most famous player in the NBA today after LeBron and Steph Curry. So this is one of your faces of the league talking out of pocket. Whether or not you think, oh, who cares? Stop being so sensitive. People are sensitive. So people do care about this stuff. Yet this is just kind of being like brushed aside and I'm totally confused. What are your thoughts and uh, anything you'd add there? Yeah. So first, I, it was such a weird thing because I wasn't. Even okay, Rappaport's also an interesting character on his own, right? And yeah, he's so, a jackass. And he, yeah. I think that's irrelevant, though. Yeah, no, no, it's irrelevant. But my point is, when the, those messages came out, I was like, were these guys joking with each other? And then Katie said, "Oh, we always go at each other over the DMs." Right. Um, and then I thought, is this all kind of a big prank? But then Katie had to apologize for it. So I didn't like. It took me a while to even realize that. Oh, this was actually Katie just literally mouthing off uh, on Rappaport. Um, look. The first thing, apart from, I don't even know why you have to talk like, it's one thing to talk trash, but to just page after page of text with just these like childish kind of names that weren't even clever. Like if you're going to talk trash, you know, be clever. Use yeah. some good insults. Like don't just resort to name calling. Like that's what kids do, right? And, but forget about all that. The most interesting thing that you touched on right now that I thought about this whole incident is that it no one really cared. And I think you're spot on when, if this was LeBron or this was oh Steph, forget about LeBron. If this was Steph, if this was Harden, if this was Kawhi, if this was Giannis, all guys who are below KD, this would have been a much bigger story. But I think a couple of reasons why it's not as big. We know KD's insecure and we know he's already had kind of these issues with social media. So it's not news, right? We've seen the whole, um, his burner account and all that. 
But I also think it says something about where people put KD in the hierarchy of, of NBA players. Like Everyone knows this guy's a bucket. Everyone knows he's amazing. But he's not the same superstar because of the whole Warriors experience. And, you know, now that people see him on the nets with, with Harden and Kyrie, they don't treat him as the same kind of superstar and are not giving the same kind of attention as a result. That's my takeaway. But, did, okay, hold on. Didn't he just get the most votes in the All-Star game despite playing 19 games? So I still think that he has a cachet. People know he's the second or third best player in the league. I don't actually think if Kawhi or Giannis or anyone did this, it would receive that much attention. Maybe Giannis because it would just be so out of character. It would be kind of insane. I, but I think I'm comparing KD more to LeBron and Steph because he's in that tier of fame. He's in that tier of notoriety. Like if you look at his endorsement revenue compared to those other guys you mentioned, it's closer to a Steph and LeBron than it is those other guys. I just – I don't understand why people are not like admonishing him for it. Like I saw some people call the comments like homophobic and misogynistic and – Look, I'm not going to get into like some of those things are things we've heard for 30 years, right? Yep. So that's yeah. just how people talk or whatever. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm just saying that some of those things I didn't I didn't make that connection at the time. Let's yeah. just go, let's just say that. But fine. If it's being perceived as such by even a small majority, haven't we learned from the the, the sort of like cancel culture mindset that we've seen in a lot of ways that people get roasted publicly for a long time in a very kind of uh, scolding manner for stuff like this. So why isn't this happening? And he's been through it this. It can't just be about the insecurity because that that's to me is more of like, okay, this is why he would go at Rappaport. But I'm talking specifically about what he said. Well, I think he's, okay, part of it, it's the insecurity, but it's also just, it just shows that KD is a lot, I mean, we always kind of thought of KD as not as mature because of some of this, how he is not able to handle criticism, the burner account stuff, like that all showed signs of immaturity. I think this just amplifies that. Like he is not that mature and it it's reflected in his language. It's reflected in the way he handled that thing. It's disappointing, man. Cause you're right. Like if you're that big of a superstar, you have to have some semblance of like just common sense to know that you can't be doing that. Like forget about like, it's not even right to do as a person, but if, especially if you're a superstar, you have to have a tighter control of what you say, what you put out there. And so there's no excuse. Honestly, there's no excuse. And I, I just think the reason people haven't reacted to it as much is because we've kind of gone down this road with KD. We know he's insecure. So we're desensitized we're essentially desen- to his exactly. like, online activity. Which is, which is bad. Like we shouldn't be, right? But it's, I think that's what it is. I just keep thinking, and I'm not trying to blow smoke regarding LeBron because I'm already tired of the year of Karthik, but I just, I can't even begin to appreciate how hard it must have been for LeBron for 18 years to literally not have one slip up in any variety. Now I'm not even talking about this. This is like level 10. He hasn't even had a level one slip up in this regard. Right. And I mean, listen, there's no shortage of people who have been in his face calling him out about everything. And it's not just random stupid fans. It's public personas. Like, you know, you could call him Skip Bayless an idiot talking head. He's still on TV two hours a day, every single day of the week because he rates high, right? Yep. So in general, there's – I'm I just amazing really. Like even Steph Curry, who's never had anything like this, right? To, to Or Giannis. Uh, but those guys are not at the level of fame that a LeBron is or even what I thought maybe Durant was. But it's impressive. And it, it just kind of reminds you every time we see another – you know, goofball like 
incident like this, that uh, it's not easy sort of turning the cheek every single time something comes up. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, but, and, and here, the crazy thing is it, this was not even, it's one thing if Katie blew up at a comment about, I don't know, let's say someone brought up again, the warrior stuff and this and that. I don't even know what in this interaction caused him to really go off the rails like that. Like, you know, Rappaport is kind of a troll and talks trash. Totally. But, but it was not like he was incited by something crazy, right? If it, like if someone had said something about, I don't know, Katie's mom or something very personal, maybe, okay, fine. You see why he blew up. But the fact that he did it without really anything that seemed that incendiary, like, I don't know. It was, it was weird. Bizarre. It was, it was totally bizarre. bizarre. Um, okay. So basketball related, the Nets are fucking rolling. Uh, they're now first in the East. They've they've made the move to the top. They overtook Philly, um, and Harden is. I mean, we talked about this. We don't need to 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 reissue that point. He is on another planet. But he didn't even play tonight, and they smoked Charlotte. Right. Yeah. So it's really. Firing on all cylinders. Uh, there's been a lot of conversation about the buyout market and and the fairness of it, and all the players flocking immediately to the Lakers or to the Nets. I think the first point I'd like to say is that this does happen every year, yeah. and they always go to the championship contenders. Um, for example, the Bucks, which is not a big market, got Jeff Teague. Uh, they may get Austin Rivers. Now, those are not the names of uh, Andre Drummond or Blake Griffin or LaMarcus Aldridge, but you could argue at this stage of all of their careers, maybe they're similarly effective. Who knows? Yeah. Secondly, I think this year feels like the names that were bought out were much bigger. And I was trying to think about why. Because most commonly, buyout market guys literally add no value to championship teams. Yep. There's a reason they were bought out. They are not good anymore. But this year... I do think teams opted for the savings over anything else. And I don't know if that's COVID driven with like the slashing in revenues where like the Pistons knew Blake Griffin playing for them or not playing for them didn't matter. They'd rather just have 13 million back. I don't know if that was just being very specific to the movement, like the Spurs who are in the playoff chase. So theoretically could use a veteran like LaMarcus. were like, look, we want to roll with our young guys and DeRozan. We think that gives us a better shot. I don't know. But did you find that there was better players available this year? Like Drummond is averaging 17 and 13 this season. I don't know of a guy that was that productive, at least, that's just available like that. Yeah, but but teams are willing. So look, I, I think part of it is, you're right, the buyout, this happens every year. This year is a little unique because the names are a little bit bigger. Like, look, LaMarcus Aldridge and Blake Griffin have not been good. Uh, um, Andre Drummond has been good numbers wise but he's playing for a cleveland team that he's not adding any value to that team um and so i understand it right and i think teams are getting smarter and they're thinking about it differently and so they're more willing to let go of these guys buy them out and and get them off the books than they were in the past a guy like blake griffin even if he was not playing that well his name carried carries a lot of value and teams would would i think in the past five years ago would not treat him like a buyout candidate. And so part of it, I think is just teams changing the way they think. Yeah. Uh, and then part of it is also, but part of it is just a coincidence that this year happened to have some really big names on the, the free agent market. So I, I, I don't I do think wanna... it's a huge, as big of an issue as other people think. 
But here's my point, right? Because there's been a lot of conversation around like, oh, Blake Griffin came out and was like, you know, everyone said I sucked for two years. Now it's unfair. How does that make sense? And on the surface, that is true. But this is first floor thinking from both him as well as all of the people who are in uh, uproar over this. This is how you know most people are dumb. The point is not does he suck or does he not suck. The point is does he suck making $35 million a year as the number one or number two option on a team? Or does Andre Drummond suck making $28 million as the starter for the Cavs? And the answer is in that role, yes, absolutely. They're unplayable. But that's not what they're doing. They're getting paid the veterans minimum for 40 or 50 games. They're the eighth best player on their respective teams. Aldridge and Griffin, maybe seventh and eighth, eighth and ninth. They're going to play spot minutes. And at that point, yeah, it's fucking valuable. Because now you're taking a guy who didn't just forget how to play basketball. If he's bought into the role, you're totally diminishing how many ways he can negatively impact it and really only allowing him to produce – in a, in a situation that's essentially tailor-made for him because he's got KD and Kyrie and Harden and Joe Harris and all these things around him, and it's like, it's easy. And at that point, you're tapping into a little bit of the Blake Griffin of an old. You're not asking him to run pick-and-roll with Chris Paul 30 times a game. That's not what you're doing, and that's not what you're paying him for. So we keep doing this thing where it's like, does a guy suck or does, it not, does he not suck? Well, no, there's more levels to that question. And they're getting a version of him that absolutely does not suck and does feel unfair and probably is to some extent, I think. Well, first of all, I think the the concept of the buyout is flawed, where these guys are huge, big, they're owed huge money, but then they essentially sign for pennies to, to play it with the, the contender, right? Um, yes. And so I think there has to be some kind of cap hit or they the, these teams got to pay more or something to, to shorten, like to to do something to, to fix that gap. I think that's number one, right? But like, look, you talk about these guys who are, you're right. Like they're not worth the money as a number one guy on their team. And that's why everyone says they suck. But the moment you put them as an eighth or ninth rotation guy, they're a huge boon. But we've seen this year after year. Like you can go back and look at, you know, the Celtics, PJ Brown, um, the the Heat got Chris Anderson. Uh, I'm, I'm just looking at some of the big name teams and who they're able to get. Um you know, but the, who was the last guy that had the pedigree of a LaMarcus Aldridge or Blake Griffin who have made between the two of them 13 All-Stars? Blake Griffin was All-NBA two years ago. Aldridge yeah, but these guys also fell off or... a cliff really, really fast. Like, Blake Griffin fell off a cliff. Like, his – Blake Griffin last year was, was not good. But the year before that, he was putting together All-Star numbers. He – this is kind of unprecedented. And same thing with LaMarcus Aldridge where um, – his value to that Spurs team and because the, the way he plays is at some point they have a bunch of young guys. They played very different style. He didn't fit what they were doing. Not that he couldn't have been a valuable piece other places. So I look, I just I, feel I, like this year is an anomaly, right? I, I exactly. don't know exactly why, but we shouldn't be just like, Oh, well they sucked on their current team. So it's not that big of an addition. I actually think these are really important. I, I actually might've said that Blake wasn't going to be that good and he's been awesome. I think this is like borderline, like almost illegal. Like the NBA should have blocked these to some degree. Like they blocked Chris Paul being traded to the Lakers years and years ago because of some version of fairness. Like how is it that like like, LaMarcus Aldridge just made the All-Star team two years ago. Last year he averaged 19 and seven. I I don't get it. It, it, Maybe, look, I don't care because 
it's not like my team is somehow in contention and the Nets like dropped our chances down. I would be very surprised if Brooklyn can't figure out a way to get out of the East and likely win the title with as much talent as yeah. they've amassed, assuming well, a healthy KD. I, I definitely think there's something needs to be fixed. They need to fix it so that there's some kind of cap hit or, you know, yeah, you have to pay these guys more. I don't yeah, know but how can you say is. they have to be paid a certain amount if they're like, we'll take the minimum. To me, I wish teams Or like there's some amount, amount that hits your cap. Yeah, to me, I wish teams wouldn't buy out. Or buyout's a strict rule. If you want to be bought out, you have to give up 60% of your salary or something like that. Something that makes it likely that players would be just like, nah, I'm going stick, to stick yeah. it out. Yeah, change the incentives so the player who gets bought out doesn't want to. Right? right. Because, look, here's the, here's the other problem with the buyout, right? The, the Lakers and the Nets, these guys were talked about as active trade deadline players potentially but guess what they were able to do they knew these guys were coming out to the buyout market they exactly. sat and didn't trade anything other contenders the denvers of the world are giving up assets to get aaron gordon to get pieces these guys happily waited and then just pounced on the buyout market so from that standpoint i get it i get why it's frustrating where you're you're exploiting this as a way to get these players without giving up anything of significance and the agents can signal so they know how to drive players oh, yeah. to specific markets. 100%. So when the Spurs said, hey, we're going to sit Aldridge and we're going to aim to trade him, there was a 0% chance he was ever going to be traded. Why would you absorb a $25 million cap hit and send out equal salary, right? So that means you're probably sending out some players of worth to get a guy that you probably have a 30% chance of signing when he becomes a free agent. Now, the, the, the inverse is if you're a team like Miami – who was originally supposed to be just going to get Aldridge and they didn't, now are they kicking themselves if they wanted him? But they also made a separate move for Oladipo. So there was no way they were going to get both. They just got one guy. But Yeah, it, it, look, the buyout market would work perfectly if every team kind of had equal opportunity to go after these guys. But these guys who are getting bought out have one destination in mind, and yeah. they, they make sure they get there, right? So it's not even like Miami had a shot. Um, I mean, maybe they did, but a lot of these guys already know they only want to play in one place. So, yep. All right. So the last thing we want to touch on speaking of the nets and, and dominance is the MVP uh, check-in here. So I think, what are we 45 or 50 games in or more? We're about, let's see. The Kings have played 48. Yeah. So yeah, somewhere in that 45 to 50 neighborhood. So we have, you know, 20 to 25 left about one third of the season left. So it's starting to take shape. Now, this has been a weird season, right? Because there's been like three or four different guys that have had like clear strangleholds, so to speak, on the MVP. Right now, that guy is Nikola Jokic, who has played all season, unlike LeBron and um, yeah, uh, Embiid, who has put up video game numbers all season, who has a bit of a narrative, unlike Giannis, right? Like he's never won it. He's not playing with another all-star, et cetera, et cetera. And he's basically first in every stat that's being measured out there. So is this Jokic's award for the taking? Or how do you think Embiid's return is going to factor into this? Is there a Giannis appetite? What about Harden? So where where, where are you landing right now on, on the current MVP race? It's a two-man race. It's Jokic and Embiid. Giannis, um, the Bucks have kind of, they were hot for a while. I don't think they're... 
they're fine. They're not wowing anyone. Um, and I, I told you, Giannis had to do something just astronomical for him to win it. He has year, to play for no both chance. teams at once or something. Yeah, exactly. He's not, so he's not winning it. Um, Harden had a great case, but now with Durant, you know, saying he's going to come back, um, I just I, I don't think there's going to be enough momentum for Harden to to end up with it. It's going to be. But Jokic do you think or... anybody would give it to Harden after the Houston stuff? I think they would. I think they would. But he like they'd have to really like. Would look, you? He still could. I I would. Yeah. At this point, I, at first I said no, but look, it's been so far removed from the Houston. Like that was what nine games. And a lot of these other guys are missing 10, 12 games. So forget about the context by which people miss it. Yeah, Harden dogged it, asked for a trade. Yeah, yeah it's beat, slightly got different. It's slightly it's different, different but... right? But like you can't take all that in the context for the MVP. Um, Harden's going to finish in my top three, but I can't give him the award at me as a voter uh, for the NBA MVP. No. Look, I, I uh, wouldn't either if when it, all things equal. But my point is, I don't think he's going to be discounted. Like Giannis is fully discounted. That's separate. Yeah. Like I, but I think Harden actually would still have a chance. I think Jokic has probably the best shot right now. I know Embiid is going to come back, but who knows how he'll be. He may not have a strong end to the, the season. And I think we forget MVP is often about the last two months. That is, it's a recency bias plays a factor. And oftentimes it's who closes the season the strongest. And guess who's in best position? The Nuggets are flying. Um, LA is slipping down the standings. The Clippers are kind of just hanging in there. There's an opportunity for Denver to get into the three seed. Um, I don't know if they can push Phoenix for number two, but that's all Jokic needs. He's got the numbers. He's got everything else. So I think is I think Jokic high enough for the MVP when Harden's like on the number one team. And let's say Durant doesn't come back for another 10 games. So you're still talking about him missing most of the year. I think so just because of how astronomical – Jokic's numbers are like you said like it, Harden we've at least seen this before Jokic has taken his game to another level and the MVP is usually given to a player who's taken his game to another level um, yeah. it's much harder to win it when you're just doing what you've done in the past um, depending how Embiid comes back I think he has a really interesting shot because he was probably the leader right and then I think he got hurt in what the first game out of the all-star break or like the second game so he's basically missed the last um, you know, month, month and a half. and Or no, he's missed three weeks. What am I saying? He's missed three weeks. So he's probably missed five to ten games in that time period. And I actually think it's been helpful to his MVP candidacy that they've been really good. Because the biggest thing you're going to look at at the end of the year is you're going to look at games played and you're going to look at record. You're not going to worry about how they did in that period when Embiid was gone because... You just it, voters don't think that way, right? They're not trying to evaluate his specific valuable uh, nature for the Sixers. They know he's valuable every year. He's like the leader and on off all that kind of stuff. Yep. So if he can put together, and I'm I'm dubious only because I think they're going to be really cautious with his minutes. But if the, he can put together a month or two month stretch here, close out the season where he goes on a tear. In the meantime, the Clippers kind of get their act together. Uh, you know, the Lakers get AD back soon, so the Nuggets can't actually crack that top three, then you could make a real argument that it's still Embiid's award to lose. But I agree that it's that two-horse race, and you got to lean Jokic just because of the durability, but I wouldn't be shocked if the Sixers can challenge or get the one seed. They're half a game off right now, um, and he he comes 
pretty much returns to to pre All Star break form, he's going to have a narrative as well. So a couple things. It it's going to be hard to get the one seed. It, it's no guarantee because he's obviously still coming back from an injury, and now Durant's coming back. So that one seed race is going to be really intense. So that's that's the reason I would not say Embiid, but I think that. The funny thing about this whole year, Embiid has kind of stayed in everyone's mind at the MVP race more than Jokic has. Because yeah. the Nuggets have not as been as good, like all the advanced stats and all the like blog boys talk about Jokic a lot. But in the general kind of just narrative and what the media <coughs> excuse me, what the media has been talking about, it's really been focused on Embiid. So I 100 percent agree with you. I think he can recapture that momentum he had in the regular season because it really was his award to lose before LeBron started getting close towards the end and then it got injured. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I want to, you know, we haven't mentioned LeBron. Do you think if, if LeBron no. had some kind of superhuman return, I know they said four to six weeks. If he comes back within three weeks or three and a half weeks, does he still have a shot? This guy just posted a picture with his daughter today and he's still in the boot. <laughs> There's no chance. How, how long he's already been out two weeks, right? Yeah. So the man, well, no, 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 they, no, they've missed. No, no, he's missed six games over yeah, one he's and missed a half. Two weeks. He got hurt the Saturday before last. Okay. Yep. I remember because me and Noobs were just getting hammered at brunch <laughs> by ourselves, and we I was betting on LeBron over six assists, and he had like four <laughs> in the first like eight minutes, and I was like, "Cool, this is a lock." And then th- disaster struck. <laughs> um. Anyway, and that's neither here nor there, but I don't think so. I think, I mean, how much more are the Lakers going to care about this regular season? They're slow yeah. playing AD back. They don't care what seed they end up. You know, we talked about this actually a while ago. I really think that Utah is going to have a full stadium by playoffs or like 50%. And that's going to be really interesting to to be on the road as the road team. Let's say that, you know, they're the four seed, right? And they got to go into Utah in round two, play in a half-packed Utah stadium, then come back to Staples and it's empty. Yeah, That's going to be weird. It's going to be weird. But yeah. I still don't think they care because I know they know they have the best team in the West if they have those two guys healthy, and that's the only thing that's important. Yeah. For them, it's just getting to the finals, and then you, you worry about Brooklyn most likely then. Yeah, and honestly, the Lakers are going to win some games here and there because Schroeder and... Uh, Montrose Harrell and eventually AD will be back. Drummond, Kuzma, they have enough talent to beat like bad teams. They're not going to beat a team like the Bucks like last night, but they kept up with them for the first like half. Yeah, um, they're leading early. Yeah, yeah, and so it's one of those things where it's like, okay, they're not going to. What will be really crazy, and I don't think this will happen, but can you yeah. imagine a world if they drop to seven? Yeah, it's not happening. Six, like, I, think. Are only I think seven, there's a big games. drop-off, isn't there? It's four, there, yeah. You're looking at the standings? Portland is only a half game back on LA and Denver, but Dallas is four games back on LA, which is a lot. Is there any Luka momentum, you think, the way he's no. been playing? No, no, no. He's been playing awesome, but there, I mean, the only thing Luka could be in question for, it's going to be really interesting to see. There's four guards. Which two are going to get first-team All-NBA? I think James Harden's a lock. But again, maybe voters are going to hold the Houston thing well, against him. We don't know. That one's a hard one. That's a hard one. So you have I James Harden, you have Steph Curry, you have 
Luca, and you have Dame. Not to mention Kyrie, who's like 28 a game on near 50, yeah, 40, he 90. Get, he won't get it. He'll get third team. But yeah, he'll get third team. Probably with Beal. Though Beal's missed some games. Like maybe it's Devin Booker. So we'll see. Maybe Fox should be in there. Yeah. Do you think Fox I mean, can make Fox a push is... for all NBA? I mean. No, nah, he won't. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what's he at, he'd... though? He's probably at like 24, 25 a game by now. It might have jumped to 25. He's 24.7, 7.2 assists. So he's, yeah. I mean. That's legit, man. Like, that's better than Donovan Mitchell. Or his better, numbers, I, I mean, think, look dude, better than Donovan Mitchell. I think Donovan Mitchell. Mitchell. Dude, did you see the Utah plane story? Yeah, <laughs> it's crazy. I mean, so for those who don't know, uh, the Jazz were flying to play Memphis last night or two nights ago. It was last night. And I guess as they were taking off, a flock of birds flew past him and went directly into the engine and exploded. And birds, actually, this is the number one cause of plane crashes is birds. Um, and so there was a bunch of rattling, of course, and there was fire in the engine. And all of the players could see this. And Jordan Clarkson talked about it. Mike Conley talked about it. And basically, we're like, there was like 30 seconds there. We thought this was it. Yeah. That, I mean, dude, that is... It's so crazy to think about, you know, can you imagine if something had happened? I don't know how you reconcile that, but I mean, obviously we're glad they're okay, but the emergency landed like 10 minutes later and they actually showed a picture of the, uh, of the um, engine and it was disgusting. It was just covered in blood. Wow. So. I didn't actually see the picture. I did see Clarkson and, and Conley talking about it and I was like, dude, that is, the fact that you could see it on fire, like, think I would be flipping out and what made me think of it is mitchell is afraid of flying yep and he didn't even play last night because he was so shook and i don't blame him yeah i i don't either man that's and i didn't know he was afraid of flying until yesterday it's a bad profession to be in if if that's the issue like that's like royce young remember or what's his name yeah no no yeah royce white royce Royce young's the espn reporter yeah the thunder guy but anyway that's it for us yeah, one thing I got to say, though, you're talking about the Lakers maybe slipping into the seventh seed. You know the best way to cap off the year of Karthik? <laughs> and look, it's not completely out of the realm of possibility. It's the Lakers slipping to seven, the Kings making the play-in as a 10, Lakers losing that first play-in game against the eighth seed, Kings win the first one, sets up a showdown, Lakers versus Kings for eighth seed. De'Aaron Fox and Tyrese Halliburton outduel LeBron and Anthony Davis. But you'd be rooting for the Lakers. No, well, shut up. No, I wouldn't. And they they secure their first playoff spot in 13 years, 14 years by beating their arch rival. Can you imagine that storybook ending? I would love <laughs> storybook ending. You still have to be in the playoffs after that. Yeah, but that's fine. Whatever. It's, it's like just... UCLA making the final four. We'll throw the parade yeah, yeah. already. Okay. <laughs> I would love that because if you really think of Car- – the year of Karthik is really an academic year, so it started in September. So you already got the LeBron <laughs> title then. You got the bubble championship. So this is the next thing with the feather in your cap. Yep. Any other That's sports true. you like that I should be wagering on? Like any other teams that are doing <laughs> – that have some opportunity here? Uh, no. Unfortunately, no. I used to be a Giants fan, and now I, I could care less. So the Giants- One last thing I'd say is like – Sports gambling is now legal in Illinois, amongst many other states. It is incredibly easy 
to to place bets. Um, and I had to slow myself down because Noops was sleeping last week. It was like 12.30 a.m. And I was watching Kings Hawks on my iPad, just live betting the Hawks, hoping they would come back. And I just lost a ton <laughs> of money because fucking uh, De'Aaron Fox was going nuts. And I was just so upset. And I was just like, I need to take a Once you start live betting Kings games, uh, I was like, you need to just take a step back and re I mean, look, outside of that, even the story you told earlier today, you're talking about you and you and Noobs had a nice little brunch, you know, a lot of drinks were flowing. And then before you know it, you're betting on LeBron over under assists. Like, I mean, really? That's like... <laughs> so I do these... Um, my favorite bet to make is player performance doubles. Because I think NBA betting with spreads is incredibly yeah. difficult, um, yep. especially with free throws and with like random stuff that happens. It's much less predictable than football. So if I just have a good sense of who I think will win, then I add in player performance doubles is basically like a stat plus the win. So tonight, <laughs> both of these things failed, so I'm not very good at this, <laughs> but I bet Russell Westbrook getting a triple-double plus the Wizards beating the Pistons parlayed with uh, Bam Adebayo double-double and uh the heat beating the warriors now only two of those four events happened so i lost the bet but it's actually the best because there's some there's some really easy ones i think at least to parlay like (laughs) Jokic double double plus nuggets and Giannis double double plus bucks i feel like always hits and you on something like that so not great depending on how bad they are but if you parlay a couple ones that aren't like great it at least gets to plus odds like if I did those two together and they were both playing mediocre to bad teams, maybe it's like plus 150 or something. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, what I've heard is what was working best in the NBA is you're taking a lot of money lines of teams that are pretty much going to win. Yeah. And then, and then yeah, like you said, pairing it with, with things that are a little bit more probabilistic and you get a good payout that way. Because like when you have the Bucks playing the Pistons, yeah, the odds are not great, but then you you stacked onto some other things and you're going to hit it. Yeah. I'll do like four or five money line favorites and it'll be like plus four fifty. Yeah. And you'll get burned once in a while, but a lot of times those are more, much easier. I got burned two nights ago. The Knicks were up like 15 versus the Timberwolves and somehow lost by one. Yeah. You're going to have, have, you know, those, especially when you're like, look, the Knicks and Timberwolves, I would not trust the Knicks in that spot, no matter how bad the Timberwolves are. I told you, I need to seek professional help. I think, (laughs) No, I'm just so the it is it is just a fun way to like keep up. And I got League Pass finally, so a podcaster who actually watches the NBA is going to be a good um, upgrade for for thick and thin here. Yeah. <laughs> but um, all right, that's a wrap. Uh, we will be back next week. Uh, we'll see what's what's happening in the next week. So we can talk about bring some new topics, maybe a couple guests, but. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Thick and Thin Hoops on all major podcast platforms. Please email us at thickandthinhoops at gmail.com, and we will talk to you next week.